Uh, great to see you uh, all here as we're uh, continuing on uh, in our sermon series on Ephesians. And uh, I am going uh, to get uh, to that message here in uh, just a moment. But I did, I did have a couple things, a couple kind of uh, things of uh, family business that I, I wanted to cover real quick before we get started. And one is uh, we did our elder affirmations uh, last Sunday. Uh, our officers and uh, James Zellhart was coming in for another term, and uh, we affirmed all of those positions and, and James uh, as an elder. But the one thing I did forget to say uh, last week was uh, that we have an elder going off, Brent Owen. Uh, they moved to Springfield, and uh, he didn't feel like he could serve anymore. He he was such a great elder. I was joking with him at his, at his last meeting that I had thought about saying, you know, an elder presence in Springfield wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Uh, we, we have people uh, go to Springfield all the time for, for surgical procedures, but he, he is stepping away. And Brent uh, was a really great elder. Uh, and a lot of you were really blessed by Brent. He would visit you uh, in the hospital or do visits. And um, he was a very uh, great presence in the meetings of just one of those guys that doesn't say a ton, but then when he says something, it was like, oh, yeah, that, that's a great perspective. That's kind of what we should do. So uh, we're going to miss him, but I just wanted you to know he served so faithfully. They're going to continue to attend here um, every now and then and come back and visit. And he's actually not in this room right now. He's serving in our kids' ministry. And so that, that's the type of elder he is. He's a servant leader. Um, I also wanted to update you on uh, the bylaw changes that we've been working through as a congregation. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, what membership looks like at Northwest Christian Church and what it means to belong here and what it means to believe here and the differences uh, between those things sometimes and the gap that can occur uh, between believing and belonging. And um, I bragged on you guys, some of you are friends with me on social media, but I bragged a while back that I don't think that there are very many churches that could have the conversations we've been having the last couple months uh, with the grace and the spirit uh, that, that we've been having them. And so I am grateful for all of you. We had uh, a series of town hall meetings. As a lot of you know, a lot of you were at one of those. Uh, and people were offering feedback and asking great questions. And we received all of that feedback and all of those questions. And we've made some revisions. Uh, we thought some of the comments that were made uh, really sharpened the language and the heart of what we were trying to do. Those revisions are on our information table, uh, our information desk out in the lobby. I'd encourage you to pick those up and, and look at those. And the next stage of the process is, <clears throat> excuse me, but not today, but the next three Sundays after this, immediately after service, I will be in the classroom right outside the, the overflow here. If you go out this overflow door, there's a classroom right on the other side of the hallway. I will be in there after church. And what we want to engage in in the next step of the process is questions, concerns, feedback mini sessions, basically, where you can kind of pop over there before you leave, and we can have a conversation with three, four, five people that might, might come in, whatever the case may be, and you can ask any questions that you have still about
about the, about the changes, uh, give me any feedback, express any concerns. Uh, we really, as we're rolling forward to mid-November when this vote will happen, we really want to get kind of every piece of feedback that we can that's out there. So not today, but the next three Sundays after today, uh, right after church, and we'll be announcing this each Sunday, you can kind of go across that hallway. I'll be over there, maybe an elder or two will be over there, and we would love to just interact with you about the revisions and, uh, and, and gain feedback. All right, deal? All right, let's pray together, and then we'll get into Ephesians, all right? Lord, we thank you uh, for the day. Uh, we thank you for the book of Ephesians and everything that you are teaching us. Um, and one of the things uh, that I love about this book, God, is uh, that as you read it, it becomes clear just how much Paul loved the Ephesians. And uh, I think that's really relevant in, in this room because um, so many of us, we, we love our church. And we, uh, we're, we're with Paul on this, and we want our church to be uh, the best thing that it can be, the, the, the best group of people that we can be. And so I just pray that we would kind of um, align ourselves with Paul and his desire for, great, for, to, for, for the Ephesians to be a great church. And then at Northwest, we would have that desire for ourselves, that we would be a great church, the church you created us to be. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You probably know... Uh, why you go most places you go. Probably, right? You, you go to the grocery store to pick up food. Um, we always try to not go to the grocery store with our kids because we always end up with more food, more sugar, more salt than we intended, more snacks. Uh, but you go to the grocery store for food. You go to the stadium to see your favorite team win. Uh, and uh, for some of us, that happens more often than others of us. But you go to the stadium to see your favorite team win. Uh, uh, for, for my favorite team, it's been disappointing, right? Uh, you go to the movie theater to be entertained. Uh, you visit home from college. We're going to have college students visiting over the next few weeks for breaks. You visit home from college to have your laundry done. You know why you're there, <laughs> right? You know why you're going there. You know why you're there, right? So let me ask kind of an intrusive and nosy question. I'm not going to ask for verbal feedback, but I just want you to think about this a little bit. Why do you go to church? Why do you engage with your faith? Because we know in our current American culture, we know that this is declining at a rapid rate. Churches all across America, Christian organizations all across America are struggling. People are not engaging. They might be engaging with their faith, but they're not engaging with the localized church the way that they used to. So why do you? You're here today. Why do you interact with a local church? Researcher Christian Smith in his book, Soul Searching, uh, talked about kind of younger generations. This book's pretty old now, so a lot of these young people that he's referring to uh, are getting close to middle age, but he says, many young American adults have a faith, and, and this faith has now per, per, uh, is pervasive in our culture, that he kind of coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And according to this view of God, here's what it teaches, and this will sound just like our culture right now. It'll sound very familiar to you. It teaches if we live good lives, if we're kind to others, then God will provide, quote, therapeutic benefits to us. Self-esteem, happiness, blessing. Other than that, God is really not involved in our world. And so you might imagine that this view of God has had a profound impact on spirituality and faith and the way that we think about God. But in particular, this view of God, this moralistic therapeutic deism, has had a profound impact on prayer. 
Smith found that American teenagers at the time, they're adults now, but American teenagers at the time prayed frequently. 40% of them prayed, they said, daily or more. 15% said they never prayed. However, what he found was the motivation for prayer had changed. Their motivation for prayer largely focused on God meeting their needs. Some of them that were interviewed said, if I ever have a problem, I go pray. Or one of them said, when I pray, it helps me deal with my problems. It calms me down for the most part. Quote, praying more just makes me feel more secure. It feels like there's something out there helping me out. I would say one said, prayer is an essential part of my success. So Smith found that in this therapeutic, moralistic deism, that there was a lack of any sense in prayer life or in faith for repentance. That almost never appeared. That I pray to repent of my sins to God. Nobody really said that. There was actually even very little sense of adoration or praise. You know, when Jesus taught us how to pray, it was our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, right? That there was this sense of praising God. And, and Smith writes, this is not a religion of repentance from sin. He concludes that this, quote, distant God, he is not demanding of us because his job is in almost in totality to solve problems and make people feel good. There is nothing in this system that evokes wonder and majesty and praise. God exists to solve my problems but I don't feel any sense of responsibility to repent of sin or praise his name or adore him. This is the system that has, uh, is consistently in our culture. I've told you the story before, but my parents started regularly going to church the year I was born. And I joke that, you know, they looked at me and they're like, we need the Lord. That's what we need, right? Even as a baby, like we're going to need the Lord the like, next 20 years, right? So they said, our local church was just knocking door to door, right? This doesn't work terribly well anymore, but at the time it worked pretty well. And they were just knocking door to door. They knocked on my parents' house in the middle of nowhere. Right? I, I always imagine that that day they knocked on three doors because that's all that there was in our neighborhood. They knocked on my parents' door. And just at that point in my parents' life, things were not going well. Uh, they, their marriage was okay, but not great. Uh, they weren't in crisis, but marriage was fragile, Raising two kids now was stressful. Some of you remember, you know, you had one and then you got two. And all of a sudden, it's like, I mean, we're still men on men here, but what in the world, right? This is a lot more stressful. My dad was struggling with mental health issues. And they just kind of looked at each other when that knock came on the door. And they're like, this isn't working. Our life isn't working. We need something else. Maybe we need God. And it might sound a little bit like your story. That someone knocked on the door, someone invited, and you're like, man, my marriage is in crisis. My financials are in crisis. My career is in crisis. This is not working. I need help. I need God. And you came back to church. And I'm that's great. But what I observed in my parents was what started out feeling that way, that God is going to somehow solve some of my problems. What started out that way, quickly over time, grew into this deep love of God. I watched my parents on this journey. That it started out with, we're in trouble, we need help, we need God, God's gonna solve our problems. And it just slowly morphed into this deep love of God. This appreciation for the gospel. 
this unwavering hope in eternal life. And it started out, like I said, with, man, we need help and we need it now. But it quickly became Christ-centered, worship-based, love relationship. And I think that this is a journey a lot of us are on. A lot of us come as the result of moralistic therapeutic deism. Right? We need God to solve some of our problems. We're not solving them. We need God to solve some of our problems. And as you engage with church, as you engage with it, over time you just find yourself all of a sudden loving God in a way you never loved him before, worshiping him more, growing in your faith. And I think this is exactly what Jesus meant when they said, hey, what are, could you whittle down all the law and all the prophets into a catchy phrase? And Jesus said, I can do that. It is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He said, at the end of the day, that's what this is about. It is growing in love. So we've been studying the book of Ephesians. Like I said in my prayer, the Apostle Paul loved this church. You can just tell. Uh, and I would encourage you to go back to the book of Acts and read the story of Ephesus. He loved this church, but this was primarily a church of new Gentile believers, and they came to church, I am sure, for a variety of reasons. It was not moralistic therapeutic deism in the first century, right? No, one's like, no one in the first century was like, this is going to solve my problems, right? In the first century, the church was being persecuted. Paul was writing a letter to them from prison, and so that nobody was ever like, this will solve all my problems, right? They knew that Christianity carried with it some baggage in that day that was going to actually create problems, not solve them. So they didn't come for that reason, but there were a lot of reasons why people came, and they were, a lot of them were brand new to the faith. And, and Paul says, man, Whatever reason you came, and I'm so glad you came, Paul says, whatever reason you came, he's going to pray a prayer right now. He says, here's what I hope you grow in. Here's what I hope you get. Here's what I hope you remain strong in. And he just kind of lays out, this is one of the great passages in Ephesians that I'm about to read to you. Right? As a matter of fact, I found a way to read it twice in this sermon. It is so rich and it is so good. And no matter what reason you came here today, if you're like, we need marriage help, we need financial help, we need help raising our, whatever reason, if it was a moralistic, therapeutic kind of thing that we need help, whatever it is, Paul says, this is what I hope you'll grow in. This is what I hope you'll become. This is where I hope you'll be strong. For whatever reason you came as you move forward, this is what we're trying to grow into people. And here's what Paul writes. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I love where he starts, right? He starts with, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family derives its name. This is a resounding theme throughout the book of, uh, through the book of Ephesians that Paul will hit on again and again and again. That God started out working with Israel, but the great mystery of the Bible is that God had intended all along to bring blessing to all peoples of earth. And so this is another way that Paul is saying, it, uh, saying this. This is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Hope is for everyone. Peace is for everyone. 
Joy is for everyone. This is for everyone. Jesus is available to everyone, and I love how he describes it. For every family. It is for every family, because every family on the planet has their origin from God. I don't know how you feel about your family, but here's what I know is true about your family. He created them. He designed them. He sent his son to die for them. This gospel is for every family under heaven who derives its name from God, which is every family. You might have some characteristics for how you would describe your family. And some of you, those are really positive. It's like, man, we are, our family, we are a hardworking people. We are an honest people. We are a generous people. We are Illinois fans, right? We, we, are, we are this. This is what it means to be us. And for some of you, when I say that, like describe your family, for some of you, it's kind of a negative narrative that we are a family of quick tempers. Ooh, you, do not, you do not want to mess with our family. If you mess with our family, you better pack a lunch because it's going to take you all day long to take us down, right? right? We are a quick-tempered people, right? Or, or we are an addictive people. We are, an, uh, we, we, we are a family that has struggled with infidelity. And, and here's what I want you to know. However you would describe your family, here's what I want you to grasp onto today. Your family came from God. Your family came from God. You might be in crisis right now. You might be barely hanging on. You might not know know or understand the future of your family. But your family came from God. That means your family has more potential than you could have ever realized they have. Because your family came from God. And I think this is a really powerful way for us to start today in our prayer life. That for whatever reason you came in here to fix whatever, that maybe you thought the issue is one thing, and I I would guess that it's more spiritual than maybe even you realize your problems are. But here's a great prayer. God, I want to pray that our family would understand where we come from. And I want to pray, God, that our family would know you and love you and worship you. So often we think our problem is something else and we come in and we pray for health and jobs and security and prosperity and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not bad. But I wonder if we need to add this to our repertoire. That God, I want to pray for my kids. I want to pray for my future grandkids. I want to pray for our family that we would know that we have come from you and we would know you and we would worship you and we would honor you and our family would be connected to you. And that's great. I, I add that to your prayer life. It's not exactly what Paul prays for here. Paul is praying not just for his family. Paul is praying for every family. And sometimes as we're thinking through spirituality, we can get locked into thanking God and asking God to bless our individual family. It's like, God, I got this situation in my family. I need you to address it. This is what I need you to do. And we get locked into our family. And Paul noticed, he says, I want to pray right now at the beginning of this prayer. I want to pray for every family. So pray for yours. Yours is included in every, right? Your family is included in every family. But I wonder what would happen today if, God, I want to pray for the families of Macon County. They are in crisis, Lord. And I want to pray they would know that they came from you and that they would turn to you and love you and worship you. God, I want to pray for the families in Israel. God, I want to pray for the families in Ukraine. God, I want to pray for the families of troubled nations. I want to pray for the families of Africa. I want to pray that every family on earth would know that they are derived from your name. 
and that they would come to you and know you and worship you. And we want to pray. We don't want to be so myopic in our family that we just pray for us and us alone. We want to have a global view like Paul did and say, man, yeah, I'm praying for my fa- I pray for my family every day. Uh, I, I do. I, you know, I pray for the people that my kids will marry. Uh, I, I pray for all sorts of things with my family. And this really challenged me this week. I, I need to not just pray for my family. That's too myopic. I need to pray for every family. So I've been praying for your family this week. I have. I've been praying that your family, whatever you're going through, that they would know from whom they derive their name. And that they would honor him and worship him and come to him. I've been praying for global families. I've been praying for the families of Macon County. Prayer continues. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is core to Paul's version of the gospel here. Right? Paul has this thing that he loves to do with the gospel where, yes, he talks about forgiveness of sin. Yes, he talks about eternal life. But this is also a core piece of it for Paul, that we are strengthened with power through his spirit. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. He passed away earlier this year from pancreatic cancer. And a little bit before he passed away, he had this blog post where he was talking about how Paul, in much of his writing, doesn't seem consumed with praying about a change of circumstances. You know, you don't see Paul saying, hey, pray that I get out of prison. Pray that someone busts me out of here. You don't see him praying about a change of circumstances. The closest thing for Paul would be when he prays about you know, the thorn in his flesh. Uh, that famous passage where he's like, man, I pleaded with the Lord to take this away. And God just said to me, man, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That would be the closest thing to it. So it's not wrong for you to pray for a change of circumstances. But Paul, in his writing, seems consumed, I would say, with how Jesus can be seen, magnified, and imagined in difficult circumstances. So Paul doesn't seem to be praying for a change of his personal circumstances. He's praying that somehow Jesus would be magnified and glorified through his difficult circumstances, and those are two totally different prayers. This is just kind of core to Paul's writings and the writings of the New Testament. And we talk a lot about the idea of the power coming to us through the Spirit. And I think it's so important that we understand this, that this power comes to you through the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, and the power, according to Paul, the power comes to your inner being, is how Paul phrased it. This is significant, because so many times we're not praying about, God, would you affect my inner being? A lot of times we are praying, God, would you change my outer circumstances? God, I need my outer circumstances to change. We want him to work on the problem, find solutions, change our circumstances. But, and, and sometimes he does that. But this text, Paul is praying that, man, I pray that people would realize that God's power is going to come to their inner being. So let me ask you about the last challenge you faced, the last significant challenge you faced. What is the power that you needed in your inner being. Not talking about changing your circumstances right now, but what is the kind of power you needed in your inner being to face that challenge? Maybe for you it was bitterness, and you were so angry by this circumstance, and you thought, man, I need power in my inner being. I need a sense of love. I am becoming bitter. 
Maybe for some of you it was a sadness and you were grieving and you thought, man, I need his power at work in my inner being. I could use some joy. Maybe for you, it was anxiety. And you thought, man, I need his power in my inner being if I'm going to face this challenge. And you thought, I could use some peace. Maybe for you, it was impatience. And you thought, I'm not doing this anymore. I am so impatient by these circumstances. I could use some patience. Maybe for you, it was doubt. And you thought, man, I am thinking about giving up on everything. And you said, I could use some faith. Here's how Paul writes it in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit, this power that comes to your inner being, you know what it is? It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. God does this power in our, this inner work, in our inner being. He does this power. And God wants to do that in you today. Sometimes we get hung up on the outer work we want him to do. Heal the person, bring the job, bring the spouse, bring the kids, bring the financial security. God, this is the outer work of my circumstances I want you to do. But Paul says, no, 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 don't fall asleep on the inner work. That's not nothing. It might not be what you want. It's like, I don't want patience. I want money, right? right? I, don't want, I don't want peace. I want healing, right? It, it may not be the work that you want, but don't sleep on this work. It is incredibly powerful, and it's not nothing. It's amazing what he does. And what is, this perp- what is the purpose of this inner working power? Paul tells us on the screen for us that Christ may dwell in our hearts. The spirit is doing this work in your inner being so that Christ could continue to dwell in your hearts. You probably, I don't know if, there, if there's a gender difference on this, there probably is, but you may have used the heart emoji this week. And that heart emoji may have been directed at a person. I love you so much. Heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji, right? It may have been directed at pizza. Have you tried the new stuffed crust? Heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. It may have been directed at the sport, a sports team. I can't believe the Lions are actually winning. Heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji, right? And here's what I'm confident about. That whoever you were texting that to knew the differences between those things. They know you don't feel about the lions the way you feel about your spouse. And they know you don't feel about your kids, or I should say you don't feel about stuffed crust the way you feel about your kids, right? We are able in our culture to read the nuances into that. It's like, oh man, he just said, I love you, heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji. And then five minutes later, he said, have you had this new stuffed crust? Heart emoji, heart emoji. He's like, he feels about me the way he does stuffed crust? No, nobody thinks that, right? We know how to read those nuances in. And in the first century, it was the same way. So he says, Christ would dwell in your hearts. In that era, they understood that the heart meant several things. So one of the things was that the heart was tied to your thinking. So you could read this text of, hey, my prayer for you is that Christ would dwell in your thinking. And you can imagine how much Paul must have struggled with this in prison that he's in prison alone with his thoughts, right? He's alone with his thoughts. And you can imagine how quickly it would be to be, how easy it would be to be discouraged and deceived and to begin to believe things are true that are not true. So he writes to the Ephesians, I want to pray that Christ would dwell in your thinking. And I want to pray that for us too. 
because the last several years have been hard. The pandemic was hard on this. A lot of us were kind of separated from family and friends for a long time, and our thinking what be, be, became difficult. He says, I want to pray that, Christ, that you would have Christ-centered thoughts in your thinking. The heart was tied to actions. They never, ever, ever would have understood an American concept that separated the heart from your actions. It's, oh, I feel this way, but I do this. That's American. They never would have been able to conceive of those as separate categories. In the first century, they were the same. So the prayer would be, man, I want to pray for you that Christ would dwell in your decision-making. As you're making decisions, as you're living your life, as you're moving things forward, that your decisions, your actions would glorify him and honor him and you would be in obedience to his commands, that Christ would dwell in your actions. The heart was tied to your emotions and emotions can be uh, so very tricky, right? Because emotions can lie to you and that's where the first century is the same as us, that we think about the heart as emotions and they would have thought about it that way too, but emotions lie. Anger will tell you quickly to do things you regret. Jealousy will lead you to regret. Happiness can even mislead us. And so Paul's prayer is that Christ would dwell in your emotions. That you would be able to say by the power of Christ, when an emotion comes over you, that's not true. That's not Christ. That's not right. That's not from God. And it's hard when things are running, run, running so high high and hard emotionally. But this Paul believed the Spirit could help us to do that, to keep our emotions in check and say, that's not a Christ-centered feeling. That, that's not true. What I'm feeling is not true. It's just a feeling. And so I've said this to you a bunch of times, that this is a time right now, I don't know if you've noticed it, I, I saw this again the other day, like someone just absolutely lose it at Panera Bread over bread, Right? This is like the second time I've seen this now. Emotions in our culture are really, really high. So let me say this to you in love. This is not a time to be pulling away from gathering with other believers. This is not a time to be not in God's word, to not be in prayer. This is a time so that when those emotions start to get a little, uh, get a, get a little bit high, we have this thing deeper inside of us that says, no, this is what the word of God says. This is what Christ says. This is what God says. This is what is True. So this is Paul's prayer, that Christ would dwell in your heart, and then the prayer continues, right? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Our primary responsibility, you guys, in this current season and every season is that we would remain rooted and established in God who is love. Earlier in this text, you'll notice that Paul's prayer was that Christ would dwell in us. And now his prayer is that Christ dwells in us, but that we are rooted and established in him who is love. So if you think about it in a gardening way, right, this whole thing starts with a seed dwelling in some soil. That's God dwelling in some soil. And that seed eventually becomes a plant with roots. So Christ dwells in us, and that grows into the beautiful plant that has roots and is established. And the plant eventually grows fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, joy, hope, and peace. So Christ dwells in us, we grow into something, and we remain in him, and we grow into something that we never could have grown into on our own. That's what Paul, that's the image that here, that Christ would dwell in you, you would remain in him, and a plant would grow from that relationship 
uh, that would grow into something that you could never, ever do on your own. Here's how Paul says it another time. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I get this because I grew up in the middle of nowhere, as I told you about it before. And when, when I was growing up, we were robbed on three separate occasions totally blind, just bl- taking everything. And I remember my, my mom came home one day and she saw that we had been robbed and she called my dad and she said, man, we lost this. Dad's like, it's just stuff, it can be replaced. And she said, they took this. And he's like, it's just stuff, it can be replaced. She said, she said they took your guitar. I'm on my way home, right? <laughs> this is not gonna, I'm on my way home. This is ridiculous, right? And, and so he came up. So we were, we were robbed a lot. And so my mom got into this habit of taking these old beat up kind of jars and she would, and like in the kitchen and stuff, and she would keep her valuables in there so that if we were ever robbed again, they would think that's a worthless vase um, and, and they wouldn't bother trying to get the treasure out of it. And he says, those of us that are followers of Jesus, we can be beat up. We can, we can be beat up. Uh, by this culture and by this world, life can be hard. But he said, never forget uh, that you have a treasure inside of you. You have a treasure inside the jar of clay that shows this all-surpassing power is from God and not from you. And so sometimes you might say, man, I am just a beat-up clay pot. And you might feel a little bit like you're not worth much. But that is a lie. You have this treasure inside of you. That Jesus loves you. He died for you. God created you. You are worth more than you can imagine. And so Paul says, man, because of this, we're hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed. Because we have this treasure in these jars of clay. There are times I feel beat up, don't you? Just by life. And in those moments, we have to remember, man, We have this treasure inside of us. The purpose of Christ's dwelling, the purpose of all of this is also that you would be able to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. That's what he's trying to remind you of, is that as you're going through these difficult seasons, that you would remember his love. You would remember how wide his love is, how much he cares for this world. You would remember how long his love is, the lengths to which he went to rescue you and redeem you, and how deep this love goes, and that we would love like him. And he says a couple things about this love. I know I'm going a little bit long, but just hang with me. This passage is dense. He wants us to know a couple things. He wants us to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Sometimes when we talk about love, we tend to think that love is a surface-level theology, but it's not. It's everything. It's incredibly deep and profound. And so sometimes when I I start talking about the love of God, God loves you, he cares about you, he died for you, it's like, you know, the eyes gloss over. It's like, I've heard this a million times. I want to learn something I hadn't known before. Um, And and, and I understand that. We don't, uh, we don't, we yearn for that. We yearn to be taught something new. We don't often yearn to be told something we're not good at. And, And for me, that's love. I would rather be told something I don't know than to be challenged on something I'm not good at. Right? I don't know if that's true for you or not, but every once in a while, Paul like, leans into this truth where he's like, man, 
I want to challenge you on love. This is not a surface-level theology. This is really, really hard. So, Paul, I'm going to talk about loving my enemies, loving my family, loving our culture, loving the neighbor across the street. We would be rather challenged to know something, but sometimes we need to be challenged to change something. And it sounds like a simplistic thing, and it is. I can say to you, God loves you, and you can understand that. It's easy to know, but man, it is complicated to do. And if you've never sat in this room and ever felt a pressure um, to, about how, a, a tension about how you're going to love someone with the gospel, someone you don't care for or you don't like or you're in conflict with, you need to widen your circle, right? This is a little bit maybe too easy for you because love is difficult, love is hard. And so my, my first prayer is that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, my second prayer is that you would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That the only way to love the way he loves is to be filled with him. To let this dwelling grow into a plant with roots that is strong that will lead you to life. And then he ends his prayer with this praise. This is the, this is the good one. All right. Not that it's, I'm not you, you get what I'm saying, right? You're not supposed to have favorites, but now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And so the question of this text as it ends is, so whatever I ask or imagine in Christ, he will get in alignment with, almost like a genie in a bottle, and he will give me whatever I ask or imagine. Now, I can very simply prove to you that's not the way to interpret this text. How many of you recently played Powerball? And you asked, and like me, you imagined... And you dreamed, and you did not win. One guy in California won. I'm telling you right now, every time I see it, it was 1.7 billion. Every time I'm like, Lord, I don't know this person. Please let them be a tither. Please, Lord. <laughs> please, Lord, let them belong to a local church. And, I mean, can you imagine being that pastor? Yeah. You know, anyway. Um, <laughs> So I can prove to you that's not the way to interpret this text because you have asked for things and you have imagined things that have not come to be. I think what this text is challenging us on is that when you are rooted and established in his love, when you know God in the fullness of Christ, when you are filled with the measure and the fullness of God, you know that love that surpasses understanding. Christ is dwelling in your heart. I think Paul is assuming that what you ask for and imagine changes. I think that's what Paul is assuming. That rooted in Christ, full to the measure of him, Christ follower, filled with the Holy Spirit, that what I'm asking for and what I'm imagining becomes gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, and bigger than little things like a new house. So I, th I think he's assuming that our wants and our asks and our imagining changes in light of the gospel from a new car or a new job or a new location to gospel-centered things. I think that's what he's assuming. So I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, 
As you have been rooted in Christ, as you have been growing in your faith, how, have what you ask, how has what you have asked for and what you imagine before God in your prayer life, how has it changed? Is it changing? So a lot of you, you have these gospel dreams, these gospel-centered dreams. And you imagine a time in your prayer life where hate would no longer flourish and love would rule the day and that we treat people better, we honor them more, we respect one another, and that respect would win the day. You imagine this gospel-centered dream and I want you to know you keep praying that. God is able. He is able to do that and he is able to do more. He is able to do more than we ask or imagine in Christ Jesus. Maybe you dream of a culture that would know Jesus and they would worship him more, honor him more, follow him more. I want you to keep praying that prayer because our God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. And so you keep praying that this culture would know him, worship him, bow and worship him, bow before him. You keep praying that because God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. Some of you in this room, you might have a prodigal in your family and they are living this rebellious life, and you just want them to come back and know and worship Jesus, you keep praying that gospel-centered prayer. Because I want you to know God is able. He is able to do more than we ask or imagine in Christ Jesus. Some of you want to see joy return to our land. Not a joy in our American prosperity, but a joy found in Jesus. You keep praying that gospel-centered prayer. Because our God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. Some of you want to see revival for, for this church. I love that prayer. You want to see this church be filled with people that know God more and worship him passionately, obey him fully. You want to see revival break out in this place. You keep praying that prayer because our God is able to do more than we ask or imagine in Christ Jesus. He is not a genie in a lamp. <laughs> He's not. But when we're rooted in him, our asking changes our imagining changes, and our prayers change. And when that happens, when we're in alignment with God in our prayers, amazing things happen. So if you have a gospel-centered prayer, if your asking has been changed and imagined by the grace of God, the love of Jesus, you keep praying those prayers. He's able to do that and more. Today, I'm not promising what's going to happen in your situation. I can't. But today, I want us to sit back as we get ready to receive communion and just rejoice for a few minutes in our God who is able. So we pray and we plead and we trust and we hope because he is able. We pray with me. God, we want, I want to pray right now that as a church, we would be rooted and established in you. And God, right now, as we pray, would you change our asking? Would you change our imagining? Would you change our longing as a reflection of your grace and your love and knowing you? Would you change what we imagine? And as we begin to see this world with gospel eyes, Jesus' eyes, I want to pray that we would pray for much bigger things than a new automobile or a new car or a swimming pool, whatever American dream that we have. I want to pray that we would ask for way bigger things than that. Like, God, would you bring revival to our church? God, would you bring your grace to our community? 
God, would you bring grace to the third world? God, would you bring joy to our nation? God, would you draw people to yourself? God, would you use me to do it? And that we begin to pray these big prayers for our church and our community and the world. And that as the result of that, somehow you meet us in that spot. And all of a sudden we start doing you, seeing you do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because, not because you've changed, but because our prayers have changed. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion right now. And this is that grace-centered approach that as you receive the bread that is Jesus' body and the juice that is his blood, this is our moment to say, man, God, I don't want to ask for and imagine the same things. I want to be changed by your grace. I want to be changed by what you accomplished through the cross. And so we're going to pass out the two cups stacked on top of each other, and you can just spend some time asking God, how do you want to change what I'm asking for? How do you want that to be more gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, mission-focused? And then I'll come back up here in just a minute and we'll receive communion as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Will you stand? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May you go in peace.